a Podcast One production. The Prime Minister is the most powerful political figure in Australia, right? Well, wrong. Kind of. Hear me out. Yes, the Prime Minister makes all the big decisions. Yes, the Prime Minister decides who takes credit for the wins and cops for the losses. But he or she don't have the absolute final say in Australia. That role is occupied by the Governor-General. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this Peacock Politics, I'm going to find out what exactly is the role the Governor-General plays, how much power do they have, and how do they use it. My guest was Governor-General for five years from 2014 and got a close account of what politics did to three Prime Ministers. Sir Peter Cosgrove rose through the military ranks to eventually be in charge of the Army and then the entire Defence Force before his appointment as Governor-General. So it's fair to say he not only likes being in charge of things, but he's damn good at it, despite the fact his just-released book is named You Shouldn't Have Joined, which I'd imagine is a title with a bit of irony. Peter? Well, yes, and it's deliberately so. Um You'll notice that the cover of the book has got a very joyful photograph on it of myself with some young uh, uh, officer trainees, and and then there's that title, that little insidious title you shouldn't have joined. Dot dot dot. It's the first part of an of an army saying, uh, which is often uh, the sort of um, riposte that a sergeant major might give to a group of soldiers who have just received from the sergeant major a list of jobs to be done during the day and they're all horrible jobs and they hate them and they're all standing there with their sort of um, long faces and that Sergeant Major will say, come on, yeah, get cracking, we do these jobs, we're Army, we do them with a, uh, in a cheerful manner. So just remember the old joke, uh, you shouldn't have joined if you can't take a joke and it's just one of those encouraging things which I think encapsulates military service mm. that you do a lot of jobs you don't want to do but... Uh, you do them uh, with cheerfulness and goodwill. It's a it's a great photo and it's a very, very good book and it's fascinating to see um, the various aspects of your life and the focal point of this particular podcast, obviously, is your, your time in politics. However, it's not in politics really being a Governor-General. Yep. First of all, setting the parameters of the role, it's completely apolitical. Yes, it uh, even if you were previously a politician and there's been a few Governors-General, very good ones, who've uh, been in politics before they came to the Governor-Generalship and um, uh, you must park that, you must not be partisan nor biased nor interfering in any way in politics. You're like the television match official. You're not on the field of play. (laughs) You are watching like a hawk and you're very conscious of every move and every nuance in what you're seeing. You become a student of it, perhaps even an aficionado of what's happening but you do not participate nor interfere unless your constitutional responsibilities are somehow invoked. Yes, to use the television match official um, comparison, there was one famous instance in Australia where the TMO jumped out of the grandstand and got involved, but I'll ask you a bit about that later on. But overall, how much of the role, how much of it is ceremony, how much of it actually has an effect on how the country functions? Well, I should think that from the uh, people's point of view, um, the constitutional duties are almost opaque because it's the uh, approving of legislation that's done in your office uh, as the legislation comes out of the parliament. It'll be brought over by some person and and you get in bunches, uh, like near the end of a parliamentary session, 
you might get a hundred pieces of um, legislation. By the time they get to you, they're no longer bills. They've been debated, they've been voted on, and they come to you as an act of parliament. And that word is actually significant because that means parliament has acted. This is the will of the people as uh, construed by the government of the day. And what appears in front of you has now been voted on and it, it represents the will of the parliament. So to that degree, you are now doing the final uh, few actions before it becomes the law of the land. You'll get a, a, uh, an act of parliament that might say it's uh, doing something with the taxation regime and uh, you will uh, read it, first of all, for its completeness. You'll, you'll read the whole of the, of the act of parliament. It might be 50 pages, but you'll, you'll buckle down and read that and make sure it's complete and that if it purports to have 45 pages, there are 45 pages, you're not going to give royal assent to it if there's something deficient in that regard. You'll check that it's passed both houses of parliament. That's a certification you get from the bureaucrats. And the senior bureaucrats in this regard are the clerk of the House and the clerk of the Senate. Hmm. You'll probably have a transmission letter which comes from the Speaker of the House or the President of the Senate. That's simply saying uh, enclosed are these pieces of paper. And crucially, you'll have a, a sort of certification from the Attorney General, the senior law officer of the land, to say, uh, in accordance with the Constitution, uh, careful words here, I see no reason why you should withhold royal assent. So it's not to give you your view, it's just to advise that it's safe to sign. So within our constitution, there's a thing called royal assent where it, it comes from Buckingham Palace, the, yeah. the Queen in yeah. this instance, and you're appointed by the Queen, am I right here, to say yes or no to that legislation so she doesn't have to deal with it? Well, here's the rub. After the Australia Acts in particular, and in our constitution, the Queen can't assent or fail to assent to legislation in Australia because it's totally delegated to the Governor-General. So if somebody said, well, the Governor-General's uh, got a cold or, you know, uh, uh, he's in the Bahamas or something, we'll run this over to the Queen, can't be done. It must be done by the person standing in the place of the Governor-General, maybe one of the state governors as administrator. So what's the Queen's role in our political system? Nothing. She, well, basically when uh, the Prime Minister approaches the Queen for... Uh, a new Governor-General, uh, the Prime Minister will carry a name and propose that to the Queen, a name, not several, mm. and the Queen is invited by the Prime Minister to agree that this could be the next Governor-General. Okay. That's about it. Learning as we go here. J yeah. Just back to your role then, getting that legislation yeah. um, or the, the acts out yeah. of Parliament. It's yeah. been through the House of Representatives, been yeah. through the Senate. So you can't just sit there and go, no, nah, that's not happening. I don't like the look of that. It's it's more a basing it on the facts in yeah. relation to the Constitution. You know, we used to get, still do, thousands of school kids come through the house and they sit down after uh, they've had a little briefing and I pop in to see them. This is what I, do, I used to do and I'm sure when we're outside of COVID, uh, David Hurley, the new Governor-General, will do that as well. This is the residents in Canberra. Yes, yeah. yeah. And they uh, frequently, a child would say, oh, well, do you ever see acts of parliament you don't like? And that gives me the perfect opportunity to say, no, well, it doesn't matter whether I like them or not. That's not germane, so therefore I, I, I don't form that sort of an opinion because it represents the will of the people. Mm. And the Governor-General is not an elected person. The Governor-General is there to basically put the last set of eyes on before saying, make this into law. 
It's good to hear that I have a mind of a 12-year-old then. <laughs> I'm asking Very the same questions. Very clever 12-year-olds. <laughs> I'm asking the same <laughs> questions. Yeah. Hey, before we delve into a bit more about the political side of things and, and what you see, you get a really close-up uh, view of what politics does to people. Yeah. I imagine the Governor-General role is a job where you're asked to attend a few events. How busy do you get? Well, you... You, you have a cascading uh, set of priorities. The first is to be available for all your constitutional duties. That's why there is a Governor-General. So they come first. Next comes the uh, matters of uh, statecraft or, or uh, representation. You'll have plenty of overseas visitors coming in who want to uh, come and see the Governor-General because that's a, a sign of the friendship between our nations. And then you've got the Australian community. So you will do everything in your power to get around to see as many people in the community after you've been available for constitutional duties, available and participating in representational duties. The rest of the time, you go for it. You go to see as many people in Australia as you can. You have hundreds of thousands come into Government House so that it's a reciprocal type thing. Endless numbers of uh, charities, not-for-profits, worthy causes, those people in Canberra would come to see you in Sydney where you've got Admiralty House, they'll come to see you there and you'll be in full embrace mode, if I could put it that way. So in the five years that you were in the role, how many days or days in a row did you have in your residence in Canberra or in Sydney just having a lazy day at home, not doing anything? Oh, not a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's imagine. not a rehearsal for your next job or anything. So, you yeah. you know, from our point of view, you obviously from time to time wanted downtime. So when the Commonwealth basically closed apart from, uh, you know, the uh, emergency services over the Christmas break, you went whoopee because you wouldn't go and try to visit people in their place around Australia getting close to Christmas. Frankly, they want to see their families and hang out with each other and not put on some uh, event for the uh, visiting Governor-General. So you got your Christmas, but uh, you would otherwise travel very, very widely. Uh, So downtime, well, you can do that after you finish. What appreciation does it give you of Australia, this role? Very big. Yeah. <laughs> when I started, we had a uh, – uh, there was a map uh, of Australia in one of the planning offices in my chancery building, and uh, I said, uh, let's have pins put in there everywhere that uh, my two predecessors went. So Dame Quentin Bryce and before her, Mike Jeffrey, both very energetic governors general, and I, I wanted to know where they'd been because if you saw five pins in one little town, you'd say – Probably not for a while to that little town. Cities, well, they all had lots of pins in them because they have a huge population. So I said, well, now we'll start with our colour pins and we'll start planning where we're going to go. Huge continent and lots of spread out settlements. And at the end, we'd had 4,200 events, many of them in Canberra and Sydney because of the two yeah. houses. And the, but there were therefore lots and lots of pins and Australia still looked pretty big. You run out of pins, yeah. <laughs> surely. And there was still plenty of scope for uh, David and Linda Hurley to keep going. Just with those 4,200 occasions where you've, you've met people, you've uh, come to understand their stories yeah. and bring it back to politics. So the politicians are there to serve the people. Yeah. And every event that you went to made you feel great about Australia. Perhaps you saw yeah. some things that concerned you yeah. in some regard. Do you relay that to the politicians that you're working with on a day-to-day basis or do you just keep that separate and let them 
deal with the politics side of things and representing the people that way. You find a way to be objective and uh, not not dispassionate, but uh, not not uh, politicised in your relay of the information. Uh, the, the earlier you could pass it on, the better. So it's not stale information; it's mm. quite current, um, and people won't necessarily just give you a political point of view. They'll, they'll come and say objectively, we're in drought or objectively we have uh, problems here with uh, youth getting yeah. off the tracks, that sort of stuff which is uh, a community concern. So you'd find the appropriate minister, and in a very casual way, I wouldn't write letters to them or anything like that. I'd, I'd, I'd find a way to convey it. Oh, by the way, minister, I was at such and such a place the other day. And you'd give them a, a story which was unmistakable but not in a directive manner. You're giving them information, not advising them nor uh, instructing them. Does the same go for international relations? There's a great story in the book you tell of the, the Chinese leader coming here with his wife and yeah. you put on the, the full yeah. rollout because, you know, politically it can go a bit up and down with China, especially yeah. at the moment, yeah. but you've put it on the full rollout. You gave them a look at the wildlife and yeah. they're holding wombats and things like yeah. that. Do you, do, you, do you have that relationship in that regard and, and not passing information back but right. just letting them know how it's all going? Well, I... I Wrestle with this, but only briefly when we first started the job, because we started to be asked by the government, would we mind visiting such and such a place? And when you go there, you go there with the um, uh, all of the power of the Commonwealth, uh, uh, VIP aircraft, all that sort of thing. So you make a visit and it's, there's protocol and you're treated very well by the nation you're visiting. So I feel that always Australia needs to uh, not see that just as a sunk cost and a, an opaque activity. But on the other hand, the Governor-General doesn't report to the Prime Minister. So I found a device whereby we sort of uh, achieved an end. When I came back, I would always draft a letter of observations to the Prime Minister about what I think the visit had accomplished, uh, the messages I'd heard from the other side, you know, uh, the sort of aspirations that the other country might have about the relationship. So this would be a letter of observation. So I, I promise you, you might be interested to know what happened on my most recent visit and over this case. Now, ministers report to the Prime Minister, and they should. Bureaucrats report to their ministers, and they should. Uh, generals report to the Minister for Defence, and they should. Governor-generals write an observation to the Prime Minister. And it's for him to decide whether he thinks that's uh, useful or chuck it in the dirt tin. It's... Mm. I don't think he'd do that, but that's the return on the fact that a senior official, being the Governor-General, was in somebody else's country on the back of the Australian taxpayer. There is an intense amount of scrutiny, with good reason, mm. on the Prime Ministership yeah. in Australia and the senior ministers yeah. as well with the big portfolios that they're in yeah. charge of. What have you seen that job do to these people? You've lived through your time as Governor-General, yeah. three yeah. Prime Ministers. Yes, I think it's a sign of the modern information age that the, the pace of politics uh, and the spread of information, which is not always accurate or perhaps focused only on the policy uh, activity mm. of the political leadership, sometimes it becomes even more personal. You know, there can be people pushing wheelbarrows of views. So that that's a fact of life. That's, if you like, the toothpaste is out of the tube and you can't get it back in. You can't go back to what might be called the Menzian era 
where, you know, uh, we had uh, print media, a bit of radio, no television in for a lot of uh, uh, Bob Menzies' time. Mm. So the pace of politics was more sedate and perhaps the focus was more on policy outcomes and what's the government doing for me sort of thing. These days it gets confused and conflated with all kinds of things, personal behaviour. Um, I, I remember the uproar when Scott Morrison took the kids, his wife and kids, to Hawaii uh, for annual holiday and copped a hiding because the bushfires came up and there was this sense of, well, how come you're there? I mean, we've got bushfires. Mm. And bushfires, of course, uh, from the year dot, have been a local issue, a state issue, not a federal issue because that's just the way the Constitution views uh, the that, that level of political administration. But he copped it. And I think that's a, an emblem of the way we are at the moment with the spread of information. It's like wildfire. Social media uh, is the is the fuel. Mm. So you just pass this stuff in and away it goes. So he had to race back. And because the fires had gone across borders, there was a slim argument that the federal involvement was now a bigger deal. But we had a deputy prime minister who was now acting prime minister. He could do all that. When we had Cyclone Tracy in 1974, uh, our Prime Minister of the day, Gough Whitlam, was overseas and he was on a, a longish trip and it was only about halfway through. And, well, the cyclone came ashore and then the federal government did get involved because that was Darwin in those days very much administered uh, by the Commonwealth. There was a, uh, an administrator who was a, virtually uh, the Commonwealth was the... There was no state government in the Northern Territory. And there still isn't a state yeah. government, but we, we certainly uh, didn't have the... Uh, the territory hmm. uh, set up the way it is now. So the federal government became involved and the Deputy Prime Minister, now Acting Prime Minister, Jim Cairns, he got on. He did it. Uh, Gough came home for a brief period, had a bit of a look around, uh, chaired a cabinet meeting, went back overseas. So from that point of view, you might say, well, that was time's end, but now I've got this image of the poor old Prime Minister of the day sitting rigidly at his or her desk, you know, over the Christmas holidays, waiting for something to come up. So... Um, it's, it's, that's a sign of the times. Uh, and I, I think that we will therefore tend to see more volatility in mm. politics. That then back to the, the governor general's role, say something happens like that. And there's, there's personal attacks on politicians yep. every 10 minutes, not even. Yep. How then do you use your role to administer a bit of advice? Are you like the amateur psychologist for them? Because that you... Because your role is apolitical, yeah. they've finally found someone yeah. that's not going to smash them on social media. You're yeah. not going to come out in the news that night and go, doesn't he want, should be doing this. And doesn't want their job. Doesn't want their job. Yeah. So is are you someone that they can really trust and have you had those conversations with? Well, you, you ought to be that person and you should seek to be that person, not by saying, oh, poor Prime Minister, do come and see me, you know, I think you, you know, and then sort of being some amateur psychologist. I think what you try to do is build a relationship with the Prime Minister that when uh, one of your routine meetings comes along or indeed your uh, on-job meetings which are perhaps a bit more public, you know, you'll see each other socially uh, through just through the performance of duties. Uh, I think at those times the Prime Minister needs to know that either in the arranged meetings, which are very private, 
or in the sidebar chats at some function, if he wants to have a quiet word, he should know that you're listening, you have his interests and the and or her interests and the government's interests uh, in, in front of mine. Why? Not because you're agreeing what they're doing or their political agenda, but because it's in the interests of Australia that the government is as successful as possible. It's just... It's just Common sense. Mm. You don't you don't want turmoil to take a government's eye off the ball. So you try to create this relationship where whatever he says to you, you will be listening, and you won't offer advice. But if a prime minister said to you, "What do you think?" Well, you you might make a comment, but again, you wouldn't. You, you would make sure it was divorced from ideological lines. Yeah. You know, an example might be uh, if the government said um, to me as an ex-soldier, we're thinking of doing such and such. What do you think, Governor-General? Well, they would be asking me because they, they know I'd have a very long military background. But there I would be thinking, okay, he's got a Minister for Defence. That's his uh, right-hand man or woman. He's also got a Chief of the Defence Force who will be hoping to get asked that question so he can offer advice. So you'd you'd be careful. You do try to perhaps offer encouragement to the the Prime Minister of the day to take care of their personal stamina and health. Mm. So, you know, if you found a Prime Minister looking ragged and, you know, the the Tom-Toms beat in Canberra uh, and Governors General, uh, they listen to them. So if you know that the poor old Prime Minister's feeling off colour or, you know, burning the candle at both ends, you'll you might say, have you thought of having a break? Have you thought of, uh, you know, uh, slowing down for a week? Have you thought of so-and-so-and-so? Uh, and as you might say to a, a relative. Is there a routine to that as a Governor-General? Do you get up each morning, you make sure you're across the, the big news of the day, either reading newspapers or on the television or on the radio? Do you invite them to, to your residence if you if you know that they want to chat? Does it happen in a certain room oh, where the big yeah, residence yeah. is down in Canberra? Yep. Uh, it generally happens in Canberra. It could happen in uh, Admiralty House because Kirribilli House, Prime Minister's Sydney residence, where Prime Minister Morrison is living at the moment, uh, as well as from time to time in the lodge. So you, you've got proximity. Yeah. Um, and you would schedule the meetings. Uh, I, as soon as I had a Prime Minister uh, to chat to, I would say, now we should try to meet. And the initiative should come from the Governor-General. To say, I'd like you to come over. Let's try for once a month. And I said, well, uh, to start with Tony Abbott, he would go and do PT and what have you, and he's very fit. I'd say, well, you're going to be doing your PT. I know that every day. On these particular days, uh, have your shower and all that. Before you go to the parliament, come and have breakfast. Mm. I'll give you breakfast. And I did that with the other two, and they liked it because it was a start to the day. It meant that they had uh, their chat with the Governor-General off to the parliament you know, they could um, unburden on whatever was on their mind. Did you see such and such a program last night? Yes, Prime Minister, I saw it, yes. <laughs> you see what they're calling me, blah, 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 yes. Oh, that's, that's right. <laughs> if they wanted to vent, why shouldn't they vent yeah. to somebody who won't relay that to anybody else and who, as I said, doesn't want their job? Do they vent much? 
Oh, that would be for me to know. Oh, I had to ask the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of the deal. Uh, if they wanted to vent, uh, they could they could go for it. And if they want to talk about uh, the internal ructions of their party at any given time, well, that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. I mean, and you just you're a you're a sounding board, but not a commentator. Man, you've got enough material for another book, though. Surely, if you yeah, like, but, I mean, but you it wouldn't do that, it. That'll never see the light of day because yeah. the, the, the 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 if you like the moral contract you have with your prime ministers is, is mm. that you will not become a tattletale after the event. I read in the book you shouldn't have joined that there's also a, a secret entrance or something like that. No, for... no. It's, look, it's uh, silly uh, protocol stuff. Prime ministers, uh, the only people to use what's called the private entrance at uh, at uh, Yarralumla are. The Governor General and immediate family, uh, the Queen, but not immediate family, just the Queen, just the Queen, and 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 Prince Philip, if she if he's travelling with her, but not the kids. No, no, kids come in through the state entrance. Okay. If Prince Charles was representing the Queen, let's say he was here to open the um, Brisbane Olympic Games when they we we get that wonderful thing, uh, and he's representing the Queen. Okay, well, private interest for you because, you know, you stand in the place of the Queen. But if he's making his own visit, even though he's the heir apparent, you come in through the state entrance, the big ornate entrance. So this is a special Just an ordinary, that's just an ordinary door. It's just a door. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's and, not like got gold tinted yeah, everything. Yeah. And, and, and the only other person who can use that door is the Prime Minister of Australia and his wife or, or husband if, if it was a lady. And that's it. Yeah, that's we had it. a minister rock up there one time during a ministerial swearing in, and he 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 came in through that entrance. He just got his go. Oh, there's a door up there. Go to that door, and this bloke led him out, and he just walked in the door. And all my protocol types were doing backflips. And I said, "Did the door fall over? No, <laughs> nothing bad happened. Welcome, minister. Nice to see you. Don't uh, do it again. No, I didn't say that to him. <laughs> Somebody probably did, yeah. but you know, it's just a door. <laughs> <laughs> the message got out there yeah. eventually. Hey. On a serious front, yeah. um, 1975, mm. so the Governor-General, John Kerr, yes. sacked the Prime Minister and the government yeah. of the day led by Gough Whitlam. Yes. Is that option still available? Well, it is in an absolute sense that if the uh, Governor-General had sufficient uh, cause, he could, uh, what we call, determine the commission of a Prime Minister or a Minister. You could come up with all kinds of wacky circumstances uh, in which that might become necessary, but it's the safety valve to prevent autocratic government deciding to hijack the democracy. Uh, you know, it would be it, these are so far out these circumstances. Extreme, extreme yeah. cases. So somebody who says, "Well, to hell with that. We've got numbers in the parliament," but they started to do really. Um, uh, contemptible things, you know, uh, uh, sort of acting unconstitutionally. Well, you might say you're acting unconstitutionally, but uh, in the event that this wasn't uh, acted upon, you could say, well, I'm, I'm sacking him mm-hmm. and we're going to have an election and we'll, we'll sort this out through the ballot box. That is so far out that you could understand it, that the safety valve... Uh, powers were being used. We call them the reserve powers, but it's it's, it's not occurred. So Philip Game uh, sacked Jack Lang in uh, the 30s when the Lang government of New South Wales government. So Philip Game was the governor of New South Wales. Sacked him because Mr. Lang 
chose not to meet the New South Wales payments to the Loan Council, and he actually uh, with, got bureaucrats to withdraw all the state's money out of the New South Wales Bank so that it couldn't be uh, attached by a writ by the Commonwealth. So the money wasn't there uh, available. So the governor decided this was uh, disreputable conduct and he dismissed uh, Premier Lang. The effect of that in dismissing the Premier is to extinguish all the ministerial appointments, which means effectively there is no government. Mm. So I think in that case, I'm pretty sure that uh, went to an election. So caretaker government from the other side. Uh, then you have the election pretty quickly and then you find out what the electors think of all that. And the same happened with Sir John Kerr, that he stipulated that Mr Fraser would lead a caretaker government against a, a date five weeks hence, which I think was the 3rd of December or some such, which was the earliest date upon which a federal election could be held. I think it was a double dissolution election. Yeah, when both houses yes, went up right. for election. So yep. that we haven't even come close no, to no, something no, like no. that. Not within a bull's roar, as the saying goes. Uh, so, I mean, there were the... You see those changes of prime ministers. Mm. That was internal to the party. So the governor general watches that. About the only thing, one thing you don't do is if you see that sort of thing swirling around, you quietly look at your program and make sure you're not in the far-flung reaches of the continent mm. at, at a time when there may be uh, sort of a, a parliamentary crisis, which w w I think you'd call a change of prime minister an unplanned or an unforecast change of Prime Minister fall in that category. So you'd be available to the Parliament. Mm. You lived through a couple of unexpected changes of oh, yeah. Prime Minister. Like, How did you view that and, and what were you doing at the time? Did you have to stay close to the situation just in case someone needed your oh, advice? Oh, yeah, but you don't make a song and dance about, about it. You know, uh, you would um, simply look at the program and, and maybe say, well, I, I can go to uh, Cooma you know, near Canberra, I can be back in an hour or two, mm. uh, but I don't think I should find myself in Perth or Norfolk Island, yes. you know, uh, at this time. Yeah. So you just uh, remain close by and sometimes these things pass because, you know, there's a vote in the party room and the Prime Minister is supported in the vote, stays on, So you know. But um, you, you, you're just um, making sure that the machinery of government can continue as smoothly as possible. Because plainly what you don't want is a, uh, a nonsense where a party wants to change the leader and the Governor-General is necessary to create the new leader, but there's some foreseeable uh, event that you, you, you didn't adjust your program to be there. It's got to be reasonably immediate and, mm. and, and quite quick. So the country can continue to roll on in, yeah. in the right manner. Uh, Overall, I mean, you've got such a good look at this with the, your knowledge of the Constitution and how politics works and, and bills coming to you, laws. How stable is our political system? And I say that in reference to, say, a place that I know a little bit about and about the political history of it as well, South America, where it seems every five yeah. minutes in the 70s, the army was rolling in and saying, we're in charge of the, yeah. the, the old junta, if you like, yeah, that's yeah. the term. Um, how stable are we in that sense, our political system and, and how it functions? Extraordinarily stable. I mean, you look back on our history, even back to the days of the colonies when they had governments, uh, they were on the Westminster model. And with all of the trials and tribulations that uh, um, Britain went through to get 
a mature system of government. I mean, yeah, heads chopped off and uh, revolutions and civil wars and all that sort of thing to establish what a working system would be. We inherited that without bloodshed and all of our changes of government have been keenly fought and sometimes uh, with, you know, uh, a lot of hot air and uh, uh, abuse flying around, but always peaceful. Mm. I mean, people have been, you know, uh, cursing each other out and all the rest, but there's been no riots in the streets. There's been no uh, refusal to accept the new government. People have sort of vented their spleen. Like elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's I've used what we've observed in the recent presidential election just as a little reminder to myself and perhaps to uh, reinforce my view that I think we've got a very good system, the Westminster system, uh, and we can uh, watch and, and comment upon and criticise a government for a number of years and then the a time where an election must be held comes along and they go to the polls and if the majority of people think they've done a good a good job, they get re-elected and if uh, they haven't done a good job, they get chucked out and the other mob gets a go. And that's uh, uh, keenly fought. But we know basically on the day of the election hmm. uh, or within a couple of days at the very most, who's going to be in government. That helps. That helps. Um, just back to the, the personalities involved yeah. and the personal side of politics, which you've got a good, really good reading. There's a really good line in your book. It says, to lead a political party is to push a wheelbarrow full of frogs, all contemplating the appropriate time to leap out. So on that, what would you rather, run a government or run an army? Well, my background would certainly say I'd be uh, much more confident uh, looking to run an army uh, in that that was my vocation. Yeah. So- I discovered that it was a vocation. It was a, a career attempt which quickly morphed into a vocation. Uh, I had to find out if I was good enough and there was a fair time there where I wasn't sure about that, neither were some of the others. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, it did uh, morph pretty quickly from uh, a career opportunity or attempt into a, uh, a vocation. So I'm much more comfortable uh, looking to lead and direct uh, men and women in uniform. Instead of the wheelbarrow full of frogs. I think you've got to be a special person, and I mean that with great respect. I, we, we, we sometimes love to denigrate our political class, but just imagine, uh, they take all kinds of slings and arrows, first of all to get elected power, which is the small power they have as members of parliament and the uh, influence they have over their electors, uh, their constituents, and then they might, beyond that, want to get authorised power, which is a ministry or a, a set of responsibilities that give them the uh, authority to direct part of our public policy. I think it's so. I admire them, and mm. and they do cop a lot, um, and it's a very hard life to have a family within, and your your partner often has to be next to sainthood to watch the thrashing you get as a politician mm. when that person is a carer for the family uh, and terribly loyal but sees very little of you because you're rushing around being a parliamentary secretary or an assistant minister or a minister or the prime minister and uh, your motives are being constantly impugned um, and it's it's such a tough life. So 
I believe that we've got to be so uh, careful not to let flagrant volatility and criticism colour the, the whole discourse. You know, people sometimes call Parliament Coward's Castle because things you say in the Parliament can't be used in a trial, a defamation-type trial. Parliamentary privilege. Yeah. But equally, social media can be Coward's Castle. Mm. It is. <laughs> so with that in mind, the last question, you have such a good picture of how our political system works. Does it give you more comfort of where we're at and where we're headed or discomfort with where we're at and where we're headed about how everything functions in Australia? Well, I would have said I was uh, quite relaxed about it before COVID, but I have watched the leadership uh, become very focused, uh, very applied to our problems. I admire what the Prime Minister, the relevant uh, Commonwealth Ministers, like the Health Minister and the Treasurer and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, and the same folks in the state jurisdictions and territories. I have watched them lead. I'm so proud of what they've done. And I'm so proud of the, what the Australian people have done. Even those who hate the loss of liberty and opportunity and amenity and can't travel, haven't got a job, uh, the economy's in tatters, all that sort of stuff. And yet they've been obedient and we have uh, started to come through this problem. So I think it's a very uh, important milestone that has pointed the way to the fact that politicians, uh, when they have captured the imagination and the discipline or motivation of the people, can be wonderful and effective leaders. Now, I think these lessons will... Uh, relay into the younger generation. And you're one of the younger generation, Adam. I can tell you that. You might feel a little older. But I'm saying that my generation, mm. definitely the baby boomers, uh, we're heading for the porch with the shawl over our knees. And I do so in my case with confidence that the people who've been through the enormous trials of the coronavirus in particular uh, will come through the other side and grab the nation by the scruff of the neck and haul us through our economic ways and be so more robust and confident and energetic and determined uh, to get Australia back on its feet. I foresee great things for our country. And I think even our you know, present uh, disenchantment, estrangement with China, for example, I think that will be uh, resolved uh, in a peaceable and reasonable way going forward. Uh, perhaps such stars as we had in our eyes about that relationship, which we've, we've felt a little bit baffled by what we've seen. I think we will come to terms with that. We still want China as a friend and a trading partner, but we will be uh, perhaps more experienced and wiser as a result of all of this all coming together in what's been a... Now, the Queen called it Annus Horribilis. It was, it's been our Annus Horribilis, but it has been around the world as well. Australia's done pretty well. And I take my hat off to my fellow Australians, especially younger ones. So Peter Cosgrove, the book is out now. You shouldn't have joined. Thanks so much for the insight, fascinating insight on Peacock politics. Thanks very much, Adam. All the best to you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. 
Producer, Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.